So, good evening. This talk is called Can Loss Give Rise to Insight? And the talk is based around four questions. Firstly, how did the Buddha's disciples respond to his death? How would we feel if our own lives were soon to end? What else could you lose with little or no warning? And most importantly of all, how can we respond when forcibly confronted with impermanence? To begin, let's consider then the effect on Ananda of the Buddha's approaching death. As we all know, the reason for celebrating Parinirvana Day is that it's the anniversary of the death of Gautama the Buddha. I suspect that some of my non-Buddhist friends feel that it's a little strange to use the word celebration in that context. Although, of course, we feel that as Buddhists, we have a rather more open outlook on death and the process of dying. However, I wonder sometimes whether we're inclined to flatter ourselves a little in making that assumption. For myself, I can't claim that when I've lost people who've been close to me, I've managed to be objective or dispassionate in any way. So how can we apply the word celebration to an event that is likely to be characterised to use the traditional language, by sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. What exactly is it that we can say we're celebrating? I want to try to answer this question, having first taken quite a frank look at how we naturally and habitually respond to loss, either through death or other inevitable events in all of our lives. When we signed up to the inescapable truths of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and insubstantiality, in other words, the logical consequences of the law of conditioned co-production, did that mean that we can just coolly let go of life, whether our own or that of people close to us? The Buddhist scriptures acknowledge that things weren't so simple around the time of the death of the Buddha himself. We're told that not all of the Buddha's immediate immediate disciples were entirely prepared for his death, even though he was 80 years old and had taught the truth of impermanence for 45. This is what the Mahaparinibbana Sutta has to say about the response of the Buddha's cousin and attendant to the news that his master's death was imminent. And by the way, in this passage... There are two words maybe to explain. We can say that the word bhikkhu means monk and the word vihara means monastery. Then the venerable Ananda went into the vihara and leaned against the doorpost and wept. I am still but a learner and still have to strive for my own perfection. But alas, my master who was so compassionate towards me is about to pass away. And the Blessed One spoke to the bhikkhus, saying, Where bhikkhus is Ananda? The venerable Ananda, Lord, has gone into the vihara, and there stands leaning against the doorpost and weeping. I am still but a learner, and still have to strive for my own perfection. But alas, my master, who was so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. Then the Blessed One asked a certain bhikkhu to bring the Venerable Ananda to him, saying, Go, bhikkhu, and say to Ananda, Friend Ananda, the Master calls you. So be it, Lord. 
And that bhikkhu went and spoke to the Venerable Ananda as the Blessed One had asked him to. And the Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One, bowed down to him and sat down on one side. Then the Blessed One spoke to the Venerable Ananda saying, Enough Ananda, do not grieve, do not lament. For have I not taught from the very beginning that with all that is dear and beloved there must be change, separation and severance? of that which is born, come into being, compounded and subject to decay, how can one say, may it not come to dissolution? There can be no such state of things. Now for a long time, Ananda, you have served me with loving kindness, in deed, word and thought, graciously, pleasantly, with a whole heart and beyond measure. Great good have you gathered, Ananda, Now you should put forth energy, and soon you too will be free from the taints. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that Ananda grieved and lamented. Even though he'd probably probably heard the Buddha's teachings on impermanence hundreds of times, the two men were both cousins and very dear friends. More importantly still, the Buddha was the great hero to borrow a word we tend to use rather lightly, of Ananda's whole life. Most people would see Ananda's reaction as quite natural. How do we deal with the loss of our own heroes, whether expected or otherwise? I clearly remember when I was 21 and living in Liverpool, being very affected by the sudden news of the death of one of mine, a local man by the name of John Lennon. I felt that in a strange way, someone who had played a part in my life had been suddenly taken away. Compared to this, how much more intensely must the departure of the Buddha have been felt for those who have spent years of devotion by his side? The whole area of death, whether through the loss of loved ones or confronting the guarantee of our own, has huge spiritual implications. This is true however we choose to deal with it, whether we brush it under the carpet and keep it out of our everyday awareness, or express our pain visibly and publicly. Before looking a little more closely at some of these implications, I'd like to consider some other forms of loss that have the power to stir us up and challenge our assumptions. So the second question, how must it feel to know that life will soon be over? I've recently been spending time with my older sister and her husband, a man whom I've known since I was 16 and is very much part of my family. Last October, out of the blue, and after suffering chest pain for a few weeks, he was diagnosed as having cancer of the esophagus, which was already inoperable and from which he's likely to die before this year is out. When I recently talked privately to my sister, she reflected how, when a couple reach a certain age, they each have to face up to the question of which one of them will die first, and which will be left on their own. These are the only choices that exist for them, no matter how long they've been together. She was very matter-of-fact when she said this, but I know there must have been a huge amount of fear and pain behind her calm statement. 
There's something about this waiting for the inevitable and maybe not having to wait very long that I find more disturbing than just seeing people that I've been close to die. In the last few years, three close relations of mine have died in old age and two very good friends have tragically taken their own lives. Obviously, all of these have been disturbing experiences for me. But there's something about my brother-in-law's terminal illness that's different. Maybe I recognise that succumbing to incurable illness is largely a lottery. So it could have been me instead of him. And could still be, whether in several years or next year or next month. Can I even imagine how I'd respond to the doctor breaking this kind of bad news to me? Or how it would feel to have a few calm, comfortable moments just after waking, before being hit by the recollection of what's happening to my body day by day. Maybe you've had experiences like this, but if not, can you try to imagine how you'd feel? If you knew that this was likely to be your last year, what would change in your worldview? Any one of us could quite feasibly have the experience of most of our assumptions about our future being blown away in one fell swoop. It could happen tomorrow for that matter. But do we ever think that something like this could be just over the horizon? I think it's fair to say that our attitude to our own deaths is usually one of denial. And maybe we Buddhists aren't very different from anyone else in that respect. In fact, we don't have to face anything as serious as death itself for our sense of well-being to be rocked. For example, a woman friend who's roughly my age and who had been a widow for a few years spent several days in the panicked expectation that she might need to have a breast removed after a lump was found. Happily, the lump then turned out to be benign and she didn't need any treatment. More happily, she decided in her immense relief that she'd better look urgently for another partner while she still had a chance of being attractive to men. The first person she met through an internet dating agency turned out to be the man with whom she's now very happily living. And he seems like a pretty good guy to me. Why am I telling you that story? What it seems to hint at, and what I'll develop soon, is that our suffering carries the intrinsic possibility of our moving beyond our current situation. And I'm certainly not just talking about our choice of sexual partners. Excuse me. So the third question, what else might suddenly and permanently disappear? Quite recently, another friend suddenly lost all hearing in one ear and was led by doctors to believe that it might never come back. Her reaction, not at all surprisingly, was shock. Wouldn't you feel the same? Our bodies are so complex that it seems miraculous that they function as well as they do most of the time. There's so much that could go wrong at any moment, even if you're still young. Then again, the loss of youth itself is irreversible and psychologically painful. It's good to believe that we're as young as we feel, to use a cliché, and we might be quite good at keeping up that self-deception. 
Unfortunately, the evidence against this optimistic way of seeing ourselves inevitably builds up. Eventually, when we least expect it, we're forced to admit that those times in our lives that we think of as recent actually happened a long time ago. If, like me, we have teenage children, they will helpfully and unsentimentally remind us just how far in the past our heyday was and how nobody will take us seriously if we pretend otherwise. Apparently, Sangharakshita, who's now 85, said several years ago that he'd assumed that he would be ready for death, but he found that what he wasn't prepared for was old age. I think he said that he's come to feel like a young man trapped in an old man's body, or something along those lines. And incidentally, a famous Mahayana scripture, the Sutra of Golden Light, reminds us how when we're young, we can be carried away by our health and high energy or as the sutra calls it, the intoxication of youth. What else do we say that we value and yet assume wrongly that it's going to stick around indefinitely? Of course, our relationships are one example, especially our sexual ones. Most of us can remember very well the shock and horror of being dumped by a partner. Of course, this is such a big part of most people's experience that popular, popular culture capitalises on, on it all the time through music, novels, films and plays. I suppose we should at least be glad that there isn't the same taboo against its discussion as there is around death. <laughs> then again, careers have a similar tendency to sudden collapse. Bad news at work, for example about corporate restructuring, as they call it, tends to come out of the blue and target certain individuals but not others. Some of you will have experienced this and seen your life change overnight, at the very least in terms of financial security. On a related note, we might say that most people assume that our whole economic system would remain buoyant and reliable, while the Western world was still having one long party. The end of that party, when it finally came, seemed to come as a very nasty surprise, even if we should have been in the know. We're now told that we were lucky to escape a catastrophic economic collapse. Maybe it was a very close call, but have we yet recognised how close? Is this perhaps another example of the strength of our capacity for denial? So the last question... <clears throat> How can we respond to such violent reminders of impermanence? By now you might be thinking, I didn't come here to be reminded how much pain and danger my life might involve and how short it's likely to be anyway. So where is all this leading? We might say that all the examples that I've been giving are of life changes that shouldn't surprise us too much from a rational standpoint. However, they are shocking from an emotional point of view, when they happen, or even when we stop to reflect that they might. We appreciate the universal qualities of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and insubstantiality pretty well with our rational minds, but are incredibly slow at assimilating them into our internal views. And views is an important word in Buddhism of what's going on within us and around us. 
For this reason, we're often caught unawares by our losses when they occur, even if we always knew deep down that they might. As the song title that we borrowed for this festival says, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Of course, this is saying nothing less than that it's difficult to move closer to reality. At this point, any of my non-Buddhist friends who might have come to this talk will have had their suspicions about celebrating death and loss vindicated. On the surface, there's not much in all this to justify cracking open the bubbly. Fortunately, and it might do us no harm at all to be reminded of this, as Buddhists, we can look at the inevitability of loss in a completely different way. The good news in all of this is that these shocking events, being terminally ill, fearing that we might be, bereavement, relationship breakup, loss of job, economic turmoil, or whatever else, are all powerful catalysts for our closing the gap between our understanding and our appreciation. Note the different meanings behind those words. We educated Westerners are generally quite good at understanding all sorts of things, including the fragility of our lives and environment. On the other hand, we're often pretty poor at appreciating the implications for our lives in the sense of responding to those implications with meaning and creativity. Of course it's disturbing when we're caught off our guard in the ways I've described, but we can respond positively to the shock in ways that will make a positive difference. You might recognise that this is classic Buddhist thinking. You might even be reminded of the path of vision to which we respond by following the path of transformation. You might recognise the idea that imperfection can lead to faith and beyond in the model of the spiral path that potentially leads to enlightenment itself. So if we're prepared to believe that our losses carry their own opportunities for creative change... What are the practical directions in which that change could take place? I'm going to suggest three areas in which we can try to change our response to painful loss. So for one thing, we can appreciate what or whom we have. So the key word there, appreciate. I remember clearly how the death of close family and friends had a direct effect of making those people who remained in my life seem immediately more precious. This was very real and intense, perhaps I could even say insightful. But the problem is obvious, that feeling fades, and I soon drifted back to my default position of taking people too much for granted. We might say that we need to make the best of the opportunity provided by shock while the feeling is still vivid. We've all heard clichés about living every day as if it were your last, but other people in our lives give us a very real focus for this sort of practice. If you say goodbye to a friend and you recognise the possibility that this might be the last time you see them, the way you say it is likely to be different. Here's another suggestion. When you practice the metabhavna and bring to mind your friend neutral person and difficult person, you might often struggle to feel any strength of connection. If you want to raise the stakes, as you might say, 
Imagine that each of these people will die before you next see them. This isn't a morbid fantasy, but it might be the jolt that your meditation needs for you to recognise what you really feel for these fellow human beings. Secondly, when we suffer loss, we may feel a spontaneous solidarity for others. So that's the next key phrase, solidarity for others whom we know have suffered in a similar way. In other words, we experience the so-called sublime abodes of metta and compassion towards them. Maybe you can recognise what I mean here. In these crucial moments, a lot of our lesser preoccupations seem to recede, while the people with whom we happen to have human contact somehow seem to become precious to us. Even people that we'd normally regard as strangers can seem special, just by virtue of being members of the same species as ourselves. This experience can be accompanied by a deep sense of gratitude to those people, quite, to those people, quite apart from people who are much more familiar to us. When we feel this sort of response, it shouldn't be seen as a loss of our normal balance and, and, uh, and judgment. Actually, it's a big step towards the arising of compassion that Buddhism sees as intimately related to wisdom. The third opportunity that arises from shocking experiences of loss is maybe the most important of all. We can recognise that our potential for insight is there, that we have more in us than than what can often seem like a dull, uninspiring level of everyday experience. When we're deeply challenged by the sorts of experiences I've talked about, our capacity to feel can suddenly seem far greater, far deeper. The catalyst that gave rise to this increased capacity may have been very painful. However, and this may seem deeply ironic, the results can seem remarkable, as if our blinkers have been removed, to some degree, and for a little while. In the model of the Noble Eightfold Path, this is an example of one of the routes to perfect vision. This is what Sangharakshita says, in his book, The Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. For some people, the path of vision arises as a result of personal tragedy, bereavement or loss. Their whole existence is disturbed and upset, as though by a great earthquake, in which everything they had cherished or held dear is laid low. In this wreck, this ruin of their lives, they start questioning, start looking deeper start wondering about the meaning and purpose of existence. So, to conclude, I've talked about some of the painful ways in which the people and things that are dear to us have a a tragic habit of leaving us when we least expect it. Of course, in a sense, I shouldn't say when we least expect it, because we can understand quite easily that nothing is either permanent or satisfactory. However, we might understand, but we probably don't appreciate. In other words, our hearts haven't fully responded to the inevitability of our losing everything we hold dear, including, ultimately, our own lives. The great challenge is to seize the opportunities that our losses give us, to develop insight that goes beyond the experience of loss. 
part of that insight, to, to turn the song title around a little, is to know what you've got before it's gone. Thank you.